Let's turn our Bibles now open to Exodus chapter 16. We begin our consideration of the manna and the giving of the manna in the wilderness. And we want to conclude that today with our consideration of the gathering, especially the gathering of the manna. I'd like to review the identity of the manna first of all, but let's read at verse 15 to the end of the chapter. They're in the wilderness. They've journeyed from Elam. They've been bountifully cared for there, and now they're deeper and deeper into the wilderness of sin And there's the complaining that goes on by the people of God, and then the provision of the manna, and many, many directions with regard to that. So verse 15, here's the response of the people. When the children of Israel saw it, they saw the the small round substance, that manna, they said to one another, manna, that's what is it, that's the Hebrew, manna for they did not know what it was. Isn't that interesting? The name of a thing is the question. We don't know what it is. And Moses said to them, this is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Let every man gather it according to each one's need. One omer for each person according to the number of persons. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. So when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. And he who gathered little had no lack. Every man had gathered according to each one's need. And Moses said, let no one leave any of it till morning, Notwithstanding, they did not heed Moses, but some of them left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. So it was on the sixth day that they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one, And all the rulers of the congregation came and told Moses. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is the Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. So they laid it up until morning as Moses commanded, and it did not stink, nor were there any worms in it. Then Moses said, Eat that today, for today is the Sabbath, a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. And the house of Israel called its name Manah. 
And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill an omer with it, to be kept for your generations, that they may see the bread which, uh, with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it, and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Thus far we read of the the giving of the manna, the prescriptions for its use and its gathering. May God bless us as we consider especially the, the gathering of the manna and that as it of course applies to us today in the new dispensation. The provision is given here that will be this amazing provision of God in the waste howling wilderness. In the wilderness, Israel is tested, and they're tested to, in their faith to keep the commandments of God and to trust in God. And God is good this way to test the people so that they learn to see just how little their faith is, just how much they need God, just like we do. And so he leads them this way, and then he gives marvelously these provisions of of manna and water out of the rock and other great provisions to remind the people that he is the God of, of our providence, of our care. The God of the Exodus is the God who cares for his people after they're exited from Egypt. He's that kind of a God from beginning to end, our God, and even forevermore. This is the great lesson of the wilderness wandering for Israel. It is for us today, as we've considered from the perspective of Revelation 12, for example, where the people of God of the new dispensation, that is, after Jesus has come and when he's ascended on high, are reminded that God prepares a place for us in the wilderness. And the wilderness is now the whole world. That's the idea of the wilderness concept and of our being strangers and pilgrims in this world passing through in a place where there is no water and no spiritual sustenance. We need God. So even the lush places of Grand Rapids and Comstock Park and Cedar Springs and Florida and all these places um, are considered a wilderness by God and should be by the people of God. For we are kept to be in the wilderness, but not the wilderness. We are kept from becoming assimilated by the world. This is God's place of having us in a special place in the wilderness as the church and as believers and as we are together gathering the manna of the word of God from day to day and Sunday to Sunday. Want to... Consider with you, however, that though this manna is given to us today in this wilderness today, it is true, as the saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And so, pastors know, and we all know, you can lead a people to manna, but you can't make them eat. 
There must be something of the Spirit of God so that the manna is given to us and we appropriate it as we should. This is the burden of the sermon this morning, the gathering of the manna, something that's impossible even for us, but which also is a provision, even the gathering of the manna given to us by God. And so let's consider this, uh, the gathering of the manna, and first of all, want to wrestle with this whole concept of the desire, the desiring the manna, first of all. And then secondly, the gathering of it in the practical sense. And then finally, our being filled. For the promise was given at the uh, giving of the manna that they would gather it, and they would gather enough in the morning so that they'd be filled. It seems even to be that they had one big meal And they dared not let the manna go lest it breed worms and stink. So they had one big meal a day in the wilderness. At least that's how it tends to to read here. But of course they could have uh, baked the manna into bread before that and preserved it for later on, I suppose. But very important. So let's consider once again this manna. We know this manna to be this miraculous provision And children, we said some things about this the last time, and older folks are still in awe of this truth, that there was this little little seeds given out of which they could make bread or cakes, and it was their sustenance for 40 years when there was no stores, there were no fields of corn and wheat and, and and, and, and all of these things. But God provided from heaven in the night while they were sleeping. And with the dew, there came with the dew, laying on the the dew in the morning, all around the camp of Israel, some two million people. This stuff that they didn't even know what it was, looked like white and pure, tasted like honey. They called it manna. What is it? What is this thing? The provision of God. So from heaven it came to fill the houses of of all of the Israelites and so that they had just enough, not too much, not too little, and they should not try to gather too much or too little, but they had just enough. And that's what God was saying in this manna, I'm just enough. And that's what he says to us too when he gives us manna, even Christ, because Christ is the manna. And we need to... Just read that in John 6, where Christ himself says he's the manna. And here you know, uh, when God reveals to us the true bread, even Jesus, just why it's called manna. Because you think of Jesus Christ and what a wonder he is. Who is he is what we should constantly be saying. The Pharisees here, at this time when Jesus had fed with 5,000 with a few loaves of bread and fishes, is now preaching what that all meant. And he says in verse 30 of John 6, after they ask him, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So remember, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus is asked to teach what What is this sign here? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, 
but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, here, here, you, you, you read here, I have to stop from time to time here. You, you read here of a, an explanation that, gives, that Jesus gives to this manna, which he says wasn't real, in contrast to him now who is real. That is true. It was real, but it wasn't the true bread. There's a term that he's using here to describe the real spiritual nourishment and that through the Messiah that he is. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The bread of God is a man, he who comes down from heaven. That's why Jesus says in one of the I am statements following verse 35 of John 6, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Later on, verse 41, the Jews were complaining about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And he says, don't murmur about yourself. You believe in me and you'll have everlasting life. Skip down to verse 53, and Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him as the living Father has sent me. And I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forevermore. Now, beloved, here is Jesus expounding the truth of the manna in one sermon. Here is the truth that confounds the Pharisees, however, because they thought that eating human flesh was wicked, and it ordinarily is, except in desperate straits, I suppose. But also, drinking blood was forbidden by the Levitical law. What is Jesus doing here but blasphemy? That's what they were thinking, and that's why at this point there was a great following that left him. In fact, practically the whole church left Jesus at this time. They couldn't understand this. Mana, what is this? And they wanted to spit that manna and that teaching out of their mouth. So only the disciples were left, and that one of them a, uh, a traitor, and they were the ones who were given faith to say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. To whom else can we go? Well, this is so important for our understanding what it is to desire the Messiah, and that's the first thing. If you want to gather the manna and gather the word of God into you, you have to desire it. It has to be what really pleases you. Because the fact is, there's, there's so much stuff in this world that we can desire besides Jesus. And it takes... It takes us away, this stuff does, and our attachment to earthly things from what we should be focusing on and the meal of meals, the riches of riches, 
the manna from heaven. That's the context of Exodus 16. The people are complaining. And they're saying, there's leeks and there's garlic and there's onions and we, had, we ate to the full there. Why did we need to come out here? At least we were safer there, they thought, in Egypt. And that's exactly what we can do. The desire for Jesus is so hard to come by, isn't it? I find that in my life, working with the Word of God. It's one thing to work with the Word of God. It's another to assimilate the Word of God and to have myself ready as well as a sermon ready for preaching and praying for you and ministering to you. It's the same thing with all of us, isn't it? Moms, you know the same thing. Desiring to teach your children the Word of God. How can that be? There's so many mundane things to do as a mom. You do the laundry. You, you change the diapers. You, you do this. You say two words, no, mostly one word all day long. And it's no, no, no. Where's the stimulation for you intellectually and without a career that will you know, enable you to be something in this world? Motherhood has fallen on hard times as a worthy job. Well, beloved, we all have these problems, and heads of homes do too. We're working in the midst of the stuff and the machines and the fields and the cement and the, and the boards and the computers all day long, and it just can tax our brains. And, and we come home, we're supposed to lead in devotions, and we find we've been very far from God all day long been so hooked into our life and to our ordinary getting things done and meeting deadlines, where's the word of God? So it goes, and this is the hard thing of life, desiring Jesus, that's what we need to do. Desiring the words of Jesus, because as we said last time, the manna represents the words of Jesus, the words that are sweeter than honey. The words that are pure, every word that's pure. Jesus himself says in the sermon uh, on the feeding of the 5,000 that his words are life. So eating him and eating his words, his instructions in the Bible are the same thing. This is how we eat the manna. Has to do with the Bible. Has to do with hearing sermons. Has to do with believing in what we hear and what we read, taking it to heart. Well, how are you with that, beloved? We're led to the manna every Sunday, I trust. We're led to Jesus and to his word and the gospel, the whole counsel of God. None of us can deny that. And it's a credit to no one but to God who has kept us faithful. There's so many churches understand that they don't even have the manna of something, I know what it is, they'll say. I know what to do. I know how to do this, and I know how to do that. But really, the preaching of the manna, Jesus, is for us constantly to say, what is it? We know what it is. We're not left in doubt about that. We confirm that. We know what it is. But constantly to be led to the question, what a wonder is this? What grace to me. Here God comes to me on the Lord's day 
And he says, I love you. I care for you. No matter how strong you are, how weak you are, how mature you are, how immature you are, no matter how sinful you are, I love you and I feed you. And that's what we hear. And this wonder of grace, sovereign grace, is what we're all about here. Sovereign grace, the teaching of it, the clear teaching in the Bible of it, but the wonder of it, too, that leads us constantly to say, why me? Who is this great God? Who is this Jesus? What a thing it is that he loves me and takes me off the street and brings me to the home of God. What a lovely thing it is that he gives me a church family and that he gives me ordinances and that I can walk in them. And what it is that he gives parents who, who receive me back when I come and I say I'm sorry I've sinned. And what it is it leads us on our knees, doesn't it? And that's something to do with desiring the word of God. It's preaching the Word of God and and reading the Word of God with a sense of wonder, in a sense that this is something that earth cannot afford. That's what it is, to desire or to begin to desire something beyond. I know when I was being converted in my early 20s, this is what God was teaching me. The life that I led, the life of whatever the world can provide, it, doesn't, it wasn't satisfying to me. And so he led me to the wilderness, literally. And there I was with a guitar on my back and walking through the mountains and you know, literally enacting something about the exodus here, and I had no clue what was happening. But God was leading me to something higher than I was, something higher than an Ivy League education, or whatever else the world could give, higher even to the height of heaven. And we all need to go one way or another on that pilgrimage, even as covenant people. One of the draws, we think, of maybe the Baptists and and their theology is that these people are told they have to come to Christ and have an experience and, and, and then receive him. We in the covenant say, well, no, this, is, this happens early on, usually uh, in, the, in, the, in the covenant of grace, and we should never despise that but love that. At the same time, each of us, as we come to maturity, and there, I'm talking to young men and women here, and little boys and girls too, as you get older, You have to learn a desire for Jesus and have it. God has to wean you and me constantly, but in these formative years, the first time maybe, but as you're experiencing these things and making choices, you have to want this word instead of your romance novels. Want this instead of being entertained want to come to church even though mom and dad are sick and you're the only one who can drive. You take these decisions, you become responsible. You take on responsibilities. It's all born of a desire. A desire to come to hear the word of God and travel however, however much it takes that you'll hear the unadulterated word 
and you'll hear the wonder of it all. And you'll hear theology that leads us not to be smug about our theology, but to wonder and to fall on our knees and desire more. This people here in this wilderness, Israel, and we, the Church of the New Testament, are in the same, same situation. There's Egypt back. There's Egypt out there. There's the Egypt within that can draw us not to desire just Jesus and just his words, or especially them. And so we're constantly dull in our desire, or we eat Jesus, and then we imbibe the world. Any of you doing that? It's just like, you know, you can't um, consider the Christian life uh, investing in mutual funds or hedge funds and putting some here and some there. With our appetites, we can't just have some for Jesus and also some there. This idea of the manna is that Jesus is everything. Jesus says, you eat me, you take me in, I'm everything. My words are sweeter than life to you. They're, they're everything to you. And so whatever it takes, it's as radical and ruthless and, and, uh, and killing experience we have as we, we cut off our passions in the very beginning of them. We say no to the computer, no to the broads, no to the, the booze that would just take us over the limit and make us those who are practical unbelievers. The desire. Then there'll be the gathering. Then there'll be the gathering. And you see, Israel, <clears throat> they were called to do something here. This is uh, something that uh, needs to be understood and also theologically. Moses says, let each man gather, verse 16, let each man gather. It's striking that every which way the doctrine and the theology of justification by faith and sanctification um, through faith and now working within, they, they're met with in the pages of Holy Writ. So too with the manna. It's given... It's laying at their feet, but now they have to pick it up. So we're justified. It's, it comes down from heaven. No, no works of ours at all by faith alone. But now they're sanctified, and that's something that leads us to have to do something. It's also a work of God, but it's in us. So here in the gathering is this justified people, this People pronounced to be gods, and now they're, say, they're told by God, now, pick up the manna and eat it. Just as in the church, you're a Christian, hear the word of God, believe the word of God, repent of your sins, grow in grace in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Do this, not so that you might earn anything, but because you're alive, if you be indeed alive. So here you have this gathering. First thing in the morning, that's what they're supposed to do. They're taught by the fact that the manna, when it gets hot, is going to burn off to gather it 
right when they can. Now, there's a biblical principle here. First thing in the morning, you gathering Jesus or you're gathering steam for all the meetings you're going to go to in the office? Have you gathered Jesus before, before you uh, to go to work or do your things as mothers and so on? Before you go to school, children, the habits of godliness, if they're not there early on, they'll never will be, or yours will be the devotion of a tired man at the end of the day, reading the Bible and nodding off to sleep somewhere in the midst of Chronicles or some passage you kind of pointed your finger to, and this is the magic passage that was going to lead you to some inspiration. Not saying that everybody's a morning person, but the Bible does accentuate mornings, by the way, and that the mercies of God are new every morning and that we'll be there to meet the dawn because we want to get up and praise God as soon as we can. But again, not that everyone's a morning person, not that everyone has to have devotions in in a sort of prescribed way and rigid way every day. But the idea is, first things first, seek ye first the kingdom of God. The manna is there. It's at your feet. You know the doctrine. You know the word. You have Jesus. You love Jesus. Show it. Cultivate the desire, beloved. Because the pastor can lead the congregation to manna, but he can't make them drink drink or eat, can he? And your moms and dads can lead you to the manna, but they can't make you eat and desire and love and gather for yourself. There's a personal appropriation that's called for her. Let each man gather according to his needs, each one. Now, at the same time, this points us to the fact that there was a covenantal appropriation because each man was gathering for his tent for the woman, for the weak, for the children. There was a corporation here, a mutual responsibility and a sharing. But it didn't undermine the fact that there were also individuals who would pick it up and who would eat it and take it in. So very important, right? First thing in the morning, and according to the commandments of God, according to those commandments of God, That is, don't let it sit all night. Don't gather more than for one day. Trust me, don't hoard it up. And there's something also about the Sabbath day. Right here in Exodus 16 is the giving of the Sabbath day, especially to the people of God. But it was the giving of the Sabbath day that was already a Sabbath day. Exodus 16 assumes that there is an institute called the Sabbath. They are simply to apply it to their their selves. And when was the Sabbath instituted? The seventh day of creation, where was made a day of rest. Actually, it is seven days of creation. The seventh day, God made a Sabbath day. He made the day. It was there. But now Israel is being led further into instructions for their gathering matter, not on the Sabbath day, but for the Sabbath day, so that this would all be understood, this eating and drinking, the six days and the gathering six days, and then the rest, the seventh, 
to point them to the true bread of life and the true rest in Jesus. They were taught here that they were not Egyptian. They were Israelites, the people of God. They were taught here that the restlessness of Egypt was over. We are taught in the church the restlessness and the the waywardness of of ungodliness is no longer for us. We baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. We are God's people, and now by faith given, we are given to understand that, and there's rest for us in the fellowship of God and out of Egypt, and though we be in the wilderness, we have God and he has us. So very important here is this connection of the giving of the manna with how they were to gather six days a week only and that they were told that there would not be manna on the seventh day. And if they tried to do uh, to gather it, they'd find it wasn't there. All to test them to trust in God. Now, beloved, there are people in the Christian service, say in the military, who would not fight on Sunday, or they'd think that would be violating the Sabbath. There are farmers who, to observe the Sabbath day, they won't plant or harvest on Sunday, even if they are told it's going to rain Monday and Tuesday, or if if they don't get the crop in. There are farmers, there are soldiers, there are God's people everywhere who make sacrifices for Sabbath. They will hold this as precious. Why? Because the manna is precious to them. The rest of God through the manna is precious. They live because the manna is given. They live on that Lord's day. Their day was the Old Testament Sabbath. They live on that day because of Jesus. Many other things could be said about the gathering of the Sabbath. Uh, excuse me, of the manna. One thing I don't want to uh, forget is that the means that God gives, and I've alluded to this already, in the home, before the children can know what to do with manna, maybe they're at mother's breast, but when they begin to be able to eat these things and to know Christ, mothers, for example... And because of this day, are some of the principal ones in the home underneath the headship of the father who feed the little ones, manna. A lot of homeschoolers here, uh, that's what you're so, supposed to do, women. Homeschooling is much broader than that. You teach a lot of subjects. You have to. It's rigorous. needs to be so we can live in this world and have a job, an occupation, learn how to read and write and so on. The principal thing is the manna. And ladies, on our behalf, the parents' behalf, the father's behalf, you, you bring them to that. You delight in that yourself. You eat Jesus yourself. You're patient with them yourself. And they learn what it is themselves to be like mom and dad, like Jesus. Oh, we're so grateful for you mothers. We're so grateful. Children, are you grateful for that? Are you? The world gives flowers and and, uh, 
cards and so can we. And hugs and obedience, cheerfulness, all these things. Three things are involved in eating, and then I'll move on. Appropriation, mastication, well, assimilation, and then assimilation. Yeah, appropriation, mastication, or chewing, and assimilation. First of all, the appropriation. Why we are taught in this Christian church, this Bible, and that in light of Reformed creeds and the other ancient creeds, is so that we can appropriate truth and therefore appropriate Jesus by faith because he speaks in words of scripture, in ordinances that he's given to the church, preaching and sacraments. To gather, we need to desire and then to appropriate truth. That's what catechism's about. That's what instruction at home's about. Christian education's about. That's what church is all about. Appropriating truth, bringing it right to our feet, into our minds. Then, the masticating, the chewing, is vital. Because we have this, now we're supposed to take it in. See, it's the whole idea of taking in something. Not just having it there, that at our feet, in the cupboard, but taking it in, in you. Now, we know very much when bad things are in us, don't we? We have a stomach ache, and we want to get rid of that. But good things are in, and we hardly notice it. But we're supposed to notice what we take in as Christians of Jesus, of course. Not just he's just gone because now he's in our mind. He's to be a part of us, is Jesus, and are his words. And this is the beauty of the Christian religion. Jesus keeps on feeding us over and over again, one mouthful after a time, or one mouthful, one message that's filling for the whole day. You know, meditation. You probably don't know meditation. I hardly do. We leave that to the monks who sit back and go, hum, all day long. Maybe in their idea of meditation and growing near to God. But what do we know of that? It's a very biblical concept. Blessed is the man who's, whom God chooses. He's like the tree by the riverside. He meditates on the law of God day and night. Meditates. One of the Hebrew words for that is, and I brought this up before, it's rather gross, it's the chewing of the cud. The cow eats in the grass, digests it in one place, and then spits it up again and starts chewing the already partially digested food to get the most out of it. This is certainly a biblical concept of reading the Word of God and then thinking about it. Thinking about it. Have you done that? More can be done thinking upon one passage, for example, than reading 12 chapters of the Bible in a day. Think long and hard about something you do, maybe with the help of a commentator, but maybe with your own faith and thinking about God. What does it mean? Yea, though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. 
Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. What does that mean? Chew on it. Yea, though I pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Shadow of death. What's that? What's a shadow? Death is bad, but shadow, what's that? Really nothing, is it? Though I pass through that shadow, that that fear of death, I'm not going to fear death. I'm not going to fear evil. So that's how you, you, you proceed. Why? Because God is with us. And his rod and his staff, his leading, however he leads, they're going to comfort us along the way. Even in the midst of death and the valley of the shadow of death, the low place in our life, we are going to think on that word and to take it in and bring it up again and bring it up again and have our minds enlightened and not misinformed by our fears or distorted and deformed in our theology by some other thing. We're going to think upon the word we know and have just read or heard a long time ago. Maybe mother taught us. We're going to think about that again. They said, watch out, what am I doing now? Am I watching out? They said watch out because the Bible says watch out. Oh, I'm going to think on that word. That's chewing it thinking about it, and then assimilating it. You've appropriated it. You're, you're making it your own, and then you're really getting it into you, and now you live it. That's assimilating it. You're assimilating the truth into your life so it is your life. So you live, but not Christ, and not you, but Christ in you, as Paul says. And manna is who you now are identified as. You're, who is that person? It's all because you've said, who is that God? How great he is. I know him, but there's so much more. And then people start to say to you, who are you? Why are you so strange? Why are you odd? Why are you weird? Why do you just go to church on Sunday and twice even? Why are you so dedicated to living out your life, even Friday nights when we're all chilling out? Because Christ is your life. You've assimilated him. And this is so hard, of course, because the world wants us to be assimilated to, uh, to itself. Because misery loves company, sinners love sinners, so they can, they can pull over the wool over God's eyes together, they think, and deceive each other in their partying. Assimilate, take in, live the Christian life. Impossible, of course. We need Jesus also to be filled, and that's the final point. You know, uh, Moses assures, God assures the people that they would be filled as they ate. You're going to go out in the morning, you're going to gathering, and you're going to gather morning, in the morning, bread to the full, verse 8. You're going to have it to the full. The... New Testament reminds us, too, that they all who were in the wilderness ate of the spiritual bread, and they were full. Amazing. The problem is that there was a fullness that to many people was like indigestion. They were burping it up. How gross can you get? Burping up Jesus 
not wanting him, not happy with this sermon, not happy with the calling, not happy with just Jesus and just the graces that he gives. I need something more. That was Israel. And sadly, that's the church today. Many who go by the name of Christian are full of their theology, though it's really usually false theology, but they're full of themselves. Are we as Jeremiah? Can we be as Jeremiah anymore who said he rejoiced in the fact that his words were found and he ate them and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart? Can it be? The only way, beloved, is if, as Nehemiah reminds us, God gives us his good spirit. It's interesting, Nehemiah reflects upon God's care of the people in the wilderness. He says in Nehemiah 9, You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. We need the spirit, beloved, the good spirit to go with the word. And that is the only way we'll be filled. Let's be filled, shall we? You can lead a people to manna, but you can't make them drink or eat. What will you do? May the Spirit work in you to eat and drink and to live Christ, the manna and bread of life. Amen. We thank you, Lord, for the word of God. Pray to take it in. We pray to be full. We pray to be bursting with Jesus, zealous for Jesus, fruitful in this wilderness. Have mercy, Lord, and use even the weakest of means and the weakest of days, the almighty, powerful word of God to turn us to you, to turn our children. It would be more full of all that you give, even of the very fullness of God. In Jesus' name, amen.